He's got a fan club here, obviously, so let me pray for you as you preach. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and your faithfulness in your word, Father. And thank you for this uh, preaching gift in Riley that you've put in here by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I pray that God, just as she speaks and preaches this morning, that we would be a receptive people and we'd be willing to, willing to hear, listen, and obey in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hopefully I'm on and you guys can hear me. Let's get, me, get myself adjusted here. Um, as Beth said, that I am, my name is Riley, and I'm married to another Stefan over there. And, uh, and I am um, a mom to a very precocious, uh, almost five-year-old Annie. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite fun to be preaching on Mother's Day. Um, and quite an honor, although I'm not preaching, preaching on being a mom, um, which is good because I'm, I'm still learning a lot, so <laughs> no authority. But we are continuing in our series about values um, here at One Hope, and today we're going to look at the value of being real and, um, and being authentic, living authentic. And I'm going to be real with you guys right now, and Paul asked me to preach this particular preach. I wasn't so keen, and to be honest, I was like, I kind of shook my head, and I was like, how the heck do you preach on being real? And, uh, and I just um, didn't know how to anchor the, the preach in scripture, and it just seemed a little hard. But uh, I did say yes, and I made a mental note not to give input on anything, because you might get asked to preach on it, and, uh, and then as I thought about it um, and reflected on it, I started thinking how appropriate it actually is for me to be preaching on being real, because if I think about it, I, this being real, being vulnerable with other people, is actually has been a significant part of my growth and my walk with Jesus. It is not something that comes natural to me. It's actually really hard, but God has used it. As I have have opened my life up to other people, God has used it to transform me and to mature me. And then um, in addition to that, this value, this characteristic of one hope is actually something that was quite a draw for Stephen and I to be members of this church and to become part of this church. It wasn't an official value or, or anything at the time, but it was something that we experienced with, as we got to know people in this community. And really, that's what a value is anyway. It's not something that you read about um, on a website or someone tells you about. It should be something that you actually experience as you get to know the people. Um, and I hope that that is the, your, has been your experience. Now, listen, we are not perfect um, and there's been, as a spiritual family, there's lots of bumps and bruises along the way, but that's part of being real, isn't it? It's kind of bumping up against one another occasionally and offending and learning how to forgive. Um, and, and we're trusting that God would help us to be a safe place for people to actually, is it me? <laughs> uh, that it would be a, a safe place for people to actually be known um, and to be, to be vulnerable. And so what do we mean by be real, right? What does that actually mean? And so I would say that that means to vulnerably live your life, that people would actually know you, 
that people would know where you come from, what your history is, what, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses. They would know the things that have shaped you into who you are. They would be the people that you, that you go to with your struggles, your temptations, your joys, and what you dream about. We want to be a place that you don't have to put on a good face, that you, you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not, to be something that you think um, that people will accept you. We want to be a place that we can share our moments of celebration. And guys, we want to be a place that we can show, share our moments of despair with one another. And you may hear that and think that that actually sounds really scary. And it is a little bit. There is risk involved to put yourself out there. But I'm hoping by the end of our time together today that you would see that being real is actually a means to a greater end. I'm hoping that you might see that being real, being known, is a means that God uses to transform us, both corporately as a people, but also individually. And this is where the Christian view of vulnerability and authenticity actually differs from the world around us, right? So currently, you you might read about, you might hear about living your authentic self. And really, what that means is that how you feel and how you interpret yourself and the world around you is king. And you can't argue with it, right? Your life is not a community project. It's about what you think and you feel. Well, in contrast, the Christian view that I'm proposing is that, yes, you know, how you feel matters. What your deep desires matter. But actually, and that's why we need to share them with those around us and not hide. But we do that. If you are a Christian, we do that because God is in the process of making us new and renewing us. And turning us into who we were supposed to be. He's using each other's lives to reveal who he is to us. And so God is using being known, being vulnerable as a means to help us live the life we were actually created to live. And so let me tell you where we're going today. So we're going to talk about well, who we were, what were we formed for? Who were we formed to be? And how we've been actually deformed. And then how we can be transformed. All right, so we're going to start with formed, right? Who were we formed to be? What were we formed for? And so to answer these questions, we've got to actually go back to the beginning. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God through Moses tells us the formation story. He tells us about himself. He shows us who he is as creator. He tells us about the world around us. And we're told who we are and how we were originally intended to function and to live. All right, so we're just going to scratch the surface. I'm just using this as a backdrop, right, of where we're going. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 20 says, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. 
So you, you see this, this um, phrase, in our image, after our likeness. And you may have heard that idea of being an image bearer. And that encompasses a lot of things. So, but the, the aspect that I want to highlight is that, and that's relevant, is, is, is that our God is a triune God. And what that means is that for all eternity past, God has, has um, lived and existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And he has enjoyed the love and fellowship that comes of a perfect community. And so he's a community in and of himself. And all that love and community and unity was to overflow into his creation as image bearers. And that's us, and that's humanity. Is that we are designed to know each other, to love each other, to work together for God's good purpose. So God desired Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to create families and live together, bearing the image of and reflecting the perfect community of the three-in-one God. And then in Genesis 2, 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, it is, not for good, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so you often hear this in the context of marriage. And it's true. This, is, this can be speaking about marriage. But there's a, there's a larger um, kind of general principle, I think, that we sometimes overlook. And it's that we are not able to live out our God-given purposes alone. We were made for community. We were made to, to work together for the purposes that God has given us. And then again in Genesis 2, 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And again, we are, we are hearing this often in the context of marriage. But sometimes we can miss, again, the, the general principle. Right, guys, this is the last verse in the chapter before we see the fall of humanity. So this is helping us and pointing us to understand what was lost. Yes, they were physically naked, but even more so, they had nothing to hide emotionally or spiritually from one another. They were free to live fully known, fully themselves, because they had no shame, no guilt, no regret. So I just want to pause there, because I think we can rush past that. But, but just take a minute to think about that, to think about what it would be like to live in a way that you never thought, oh, I can't show that to someone. To never live with regret or guilt. Guys, that's, that's huge, and that's the way we were designed for my brain actually can't quite fathom it because I, I, I don't know what it's like to live that way. So a few weeks ago, Johannes and Ali spoke on being warm and welcoming. And Johannes said that at the, the core of all people, they desire to be loved and known. That is such a true statement. Because that's the way we were created for We were created to be fully known, to be fully loved, and to live out of that place. He created us 
to live in loving community, fully known, working together in unity for God's good purposes. So Paul Tripp, in one of his books, put it this way, We weren't created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God and in a loving and humble interdependency with one another. Our lives were designed to be community projects. So guys, what went wrong? Why don't we live that way? The problem that we have, the reason that we don't experience this beautiful design of community with others and with God is because we are terribly deformed people. In Genesis 3, we see the serpent comes to deceive God's image bearers. God had told Adam and Eve one thing, one thing only, that they were prohibited from. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes and raises doubts in Eve's mind of the goodness of God, of his trustworthiness. And after a brief exchange, we see Eve give in to the temptation. So we're going to pick up in in, uh, verse 6 in chapter 3, Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight in the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Right? It goes back to that verse just seven, seven verses before that God highlighted that they were naked and unashamed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, so that God came to them. And what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then God pursued them. He called the man and he said to him, where are you? And And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, no, it was the serpent. He deceived me. So you may be familiar with this story, right? But it's possible that you've never actually thought through the implications of it. We often think of this story and we think, Oh yeah, this is the story that, God, that sin entered the world, that broke the world. But it's much worse than that. This is the story that tells us that sin entered us, that sin entered humanity, that we are now longer, no longer able to function as we were created to function, that we are broken at the core of who we are. And we were changed because of it. From this time forward, we, our very being, is deformed. From this time forward, we question God's character. We defy the instructions that he has given us to flourish in life. And although we want to choose our own way, and that's the desire that we have, there's an underlying feeling of guilt and shame that comes with that. From this time forward, our default is to hide from one another, to cover ourselves, to pretend to be or to feel the way that we think is acceptable. We desire to get approval from others instead of God. 
the God who made us. And from this time forward, we tend to see others as adversaries instead of allies. Right? Look how immediately Adam is like pointing the finger at Eve and and then Eve is looking at the serpent. Because of this this trust of God and others and the desire to hide our true selves, we choose independence, autonomy, and self-reliance. We convince ourselves that we don't need God or anyone else. And often, and this can kind of manifest itself in two different ways. Sometimes we can get a bravado and and a real pride that says, you know what, I don't need anyone. I don't need you. I can do the life on my own. And then often we can feel shame because we look around and we think that we should be strong enough to, to take life on, its, on our own. But we know deep down that we're not. And so we feel guilty for that. We feel ashamed for that. Or, and we can feel like we're going to be a burden to other people. And so we don't. And we hold everything in. And so there's a, there's a lot of ways that this plays its way out. But currently what we see is really a privatization of our lives. Our lives become privatized silos, only casually grazing other people as we interact. Even our faith becomes privatized. The idea of me and Jesus not needing to be a part of a broader local body. And when we do become a part of our church... Sometimes our relationships become very, or or stay at a very surface level. And we hold in our struggles, hiding our weaknesses, not asking for help, not asking for the help and encouragement we were actually designed for. And we can often become offended when people do point out a weakness or a way that we've wronged them. Is it any wonder that we're currently living in a time when experience of loneliness is skyrocketing. Guys, we long to be loved and known even if we don't realize it. We weren't made for privatization. We weren't designed to live these siloed individual lives. We were made for so much more. And so is there any hope? Well, the wonderful news about the Christian message, about the gospel, is that there is always hope. And thankfully, the story of the world didn't end at Genesis 3. So through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, God is making all things new. And he's working for transformation. Through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We are made right with God. And so we can boldly come into relationship with God. Without any guilt or shame, we can see God as our good father, right? And this is at the core of the gospel, but it doesn't actually stop there. God is also working through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform each of us that puts our faith in Christ into the image of Christ. But this is often where we, where we stop. 
And again, I, I, have a, I, I'm, I suspect that this is because of our bent towards individualism and our and independence. After coming to faith, many of us are actually okay with this idea of being dependent on God, of needing him, at least in theory. But we are still, desi- we are still designed to be an intimate community with others. That hasn't changed. And so through and alongside our personal transformation, transformation is a corporate transformation. God is forming a people for himself, a people that is interdependent on one another as they together are dependent on God. And God has always been working towards a people and making a people, not just a bunch and a collection of individuals. Right? So, so even from uh, Genesis 12, his, God's promise to Abraham, it says, and I will make you Make of you a great nation. So God didn't say, Abraham, you're going to have a lot of people. They're going to be these individual. They might come together as a collective. No, he's, he's making a people for himself. And in the New Testament, we see God saving individuals and adding them to a people. So in Titus 2, says that Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession. And in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what does this have to do with being real? Right? So being real, living vulnerably, and sharing our lives with one another, I'm convinced that it is a means that God uses to transform us from independent, individual people into his people who together image God to the world. And so you're not going to find, if you look through the Bible, you're not going to find a verse that... um, that commands you to be real with one another. Or to, but throughout the New Testament, we are given instructions over and over again how to live in unity as a community, how to interact and treat each other, how to not treat each other, how to become the people of God. You know, we can, we, you may have heard a lot of these passages. They're often referred to as the one another passages. And there are about 59 passages that explicitly use the phrase one another and many other commands on how to treat brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, and as I thought about it, I don't see how we can genuinely live out these instructions without living vulnerable with one another. Guys, how how do we forgive one another if we don't get close enough to, like, offend how do, we, how do we live out all these things that God has, has given us instructions if we're just kind of casually in each other's lives? If you're not willing to share your life, how can you get, get the encouragement that you need? And so don't worry, we're not going to go through all 59. 
But I do want to highlight a few just to kind of help us see how God is calling us to live vulnerable lives with one another. But I also want to show you that it's also for your good and it's for your growth into Christ's image. The benefit of genuinely living out the one another passages and sharing your lives is both communal and individual transformation. And so the first one that I want to look at is that we, we're told to love one another. So in John 13, 34, it says, A new command I give to you, the, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And, and then later in John 15, this is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. So about a third of the one another passages are instructions to love one another. And it makes sense that that God would emphasize this one so much. Because as I've said, being loved is fundamental. It's a fundamental need and desire that we have. Guys, we were made to love and to, to, to be loved. And it is possible to give and receive love if someone doesn't know you and doesn't know you well. I've experienced love from people that don't know me well, and I, I hope that I've given love to people that, that, that I don't know. But there is something about receiving love given by someone that truly knows you. Right? They know where you have fallen and where you continue to fall short. They know the ways that you've offended them in the past. And they know where you're weak. They know the areas of your life that in a lot of ways may not seem lovable. There's something about being known and still loved that meets a fundamental need. So many of us have, have lived with a fear that if people only knew that about me, they wouldn't love me. And so we need it. There's a depth to this kind of love. And it, it, in a small way, it reflects Jesus' love for us. Right? So notice in these two verses that it says, Love one another as I have loved you. And we often focus on the fa- sacrificial love of Jesus, and that is true, and that's the emphasis of this. But as I was kind of thinking about it and reflecting on it, I started thinking about the fact that Jesus knows me fully. And he knows you fully. And he loves us. And I'm wondering if maybe that is actually a way that we can love like Jesus. Is that we can choose to love someone even though we know the ways that they fall short. The ways that they have offended us. When we get into one another's lives and we offend each other and we rub each other the wrong way and we disagree but we still choose to love sacrificially, we are reflecting who Jesus is. And I need that in my life. I need people to love me that way. I need people to to know me and to love me even though they know my worst. Because it points me to Jesus, and it reminds me that he loves me so much more. 
and he knows me more. And so the next one, that, so we need to love and we need to be known and loved. And so now I want to look at encourage one another. So we are instructed to encourage one another. So in Hebrews 3, 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And again in Hebrews 10, not forsaking our own assembling together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, right, we can encourage each other without really knowing one another. But how much more impactful is it to get an encouragement in a specific way that you need? So I I actually experienced this this week, okay? So I love to teach. I like to teach. (laughs) But when I... (laughs) But when I teach publicly in a group setting, there's something about it that often that makes um, my prep can actually be quite emotional and it can be quite a spiritual battle for me because there's something about teaching publicly that brings out in me my performance mode. The thing that makes me want to prove who I, that my worth to people, it makes me want to, to please those around me, and it's exhausting. And people in this community know that about me, and actually now everyone in this community knows that about me. But this week, those that did know that, they reached out to me. And they specifically asked how I was doing. They reminded me to rest in the Father's love in the midst of it. They reminded me who I am. And they prayed for me. Guys, how helpful that was to me. How helpful it was to get specific encouragement in an area of weakness for me. It strengthened me. And it's because those people knew me. It's because I took a risk to be known. And so also the author of Hebrews here ties encouragement to the fighting of sin. It's, it's, guys, it's speaking truth to one another. It's relevant truth, specific truth. That's what encouragement is. Yes, it can be general, but how, how impactful it is. We need it. And so we're instructed to love one another. We're instructed to encourage one another. And then we're instructed to confess your sins to one another. So James five sixteen says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. One of the most successful traps of the devil is to keep us isolated and alone in our sin. The more isolated that we are in our sin and temptation, the more destruction that it can do in our lives and in the lives around us. In the darkness, sin gains power over you. 
it can, you can be crippled with guilt. We can often feel hopeless and powerless to, to really stand up and fight against it. Guys, and Satan knows this. And so he's going to try to convince you that you can't tell anyone, that no one will understand, no one will accept you. But the reality is that we weren't made to fight sin alone. And in fact, often we can't. I've found in my life that there's something supernatural that happens when I confess sin to people. There's something about it that when we bring our parts of our hidden lives into the light that allows the gospel to break in and bring power to change and to fight. But to me, that shows that fighting sin should be a community project. And it must be a community project. There's something about it that the humbling of bringing our sin before others that God uses to remind us that we, that we need power. We need his power, and we need others to come with us. And I just want to, to say one other thing about that, is that maybe you're dipping your toes into sin, just kind of checking the waters, and there isn't that deep sense of guilt initially. Guys, that's when we, and you might think, well, I don't need to tell anyone about this. That's actually the most important time. Because, guys, I told you that we're deformed. We're deformed in a lot of ways. And we're, we need to people to come, come alongside us and to realign us. And so even if you're not feeling that conviction, guys, that even more so, you need people to come alongside of you, to challenge you, to help you align with, with God's word. And the last one that I kind of want to highlight is bearing burdens. So in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I want to highlight this one because this is often one of the biggest hindrances to being vulnerable with one another is that we don't want to be a vulnerable. We don't want to be a burden. We don't, we don't want to people to worry about us, to be a burden with our problems or our emotions. Paul is clear here, though, that individual burdens are meant to be carried co- 